You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, as Alan mentioned, I'm Nick. I'm a pastor here in Illini Life. If we haven't met, uh, welcome. It's good to be with you this morning. I know Labor Day weekend can be a... uh, a busy one around here. A lot of our friends are traveling, as Alan acknowledged. I know people are at home visiting family, friends, uh, maybe uh, made the trip just back home to pick up a few things they forgot. But if you're here in the room, if you're on our live stream or even watching it later uh, on the recording, welcome. It's good to be with you. I hope you're having a restful Labor Day weekend. I hope you're enjoying an extended uh, weekend here early on the school year. I hope you're finding rest and, and enjoying some time to be in community and with the Lord. And I'm excited to do that tomorrow at the Hobblies and enjoy their pool to rest in. I probably won't eat those ribs, but I'll enjoy some good cooked food. Well, uh, as we begin our teaching this morning, as we dive into our passage, I want to start with a question. A question to get us thinking along uh, the lines of, of where our passage is headed. The question is this. What language does God speak? What language does God speak? Think about that. The Bible records all kinds of interactions God has where he speaks with people, gives them directions. It's recording the language of God. What language did he speak? Now, to my knowledge, this is a very interesting fact about Christianity as I thought about it. Of all the world major religions, it's the only one that doesn't require you to, to, you know, learn the original languages that the Holy Book was written in or, or that God spoke and revealed these Uh, his truth in right you can read the bible you can read the words that the lord has revealed to us in your own language and actually most people groups around the world can in fact i think pretty much everybody or you know wycliffe is trying to make that possible that everybody can have the bible in their native language you don't have to go and learn greek or hebrew to be able to access what the bible says and as you thought about that question, do you, do you maybe do you know what language Jesus spoke? We know that. Uh, you, know, you might think the New Testament's written in Greek, right? I've heard that before, so maybe he spoke Greek. Nope, Jesus didn't speak Greek. Or you could think, you know, this, is, this would be a good guess, right? Like, he's Jewish, so he probably speaks Hebrew, right? Nope, Jesus didn't speak Hebrew. He may have, but, but it seems there's strong evidence that Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. That was the common language. Very close to Hebrew, by the way. I think it's, it's interesting to think about that, right? Because that means if Jesus spoke Aramaic, every word you have ever read about Jesus, every word that, that is quoted to Jesus is a translation. It wasn't what he originally spoke. It's been translated into Greek and then translated into English, right? That's fascinating. It's not the original, exact original copy, and no one's claimed it is. Language is an interesting thing. That's what I'm getting at. Language isn't just about words on a page, right? It incorporates culture and nonverbals. It shows intent and meaning. There's nuance to language. Let me, let me give you an example just to try to illustrate what I mean, because language is really important. If my wife is wearing a dress that accentuates her beauty, and, and I find it, find it very attractive, right? I might say, nice. Right? And that communicates something to her, right? That tells her that I'm pleased with how she looks and her beauty. But then also, 
if my son puts on that same dress and walks around our house pretending to be his mommy, I might say, nice, (laughs) right? Which communicates something very different, right? In one case, I'm acknowledging my wife's beauty and how the dress draws that out and and, uh, sharing my my pleasure with that, that I enjoy seeing her... uh, and, and uh, recognizing her beauty. In the other case, right, like I'm, I'm acknowledging my son's sense of humor and, and the hilarity of the situation that he's pretending to be his mom wearing a dress, right? Um, and that example comes to mind because it's, it sort of actually happened this week. Amy, uh, my son was walking around in my wife's robes pretending to be mommy in the house, and it was just hilarious. We were cracking up for most of the day about it. Uh, so anyways, that, that's beside the point. I'm off on a tangent. Um, The point is, language is an interesting thing. It's interesting and it's foundational for us, right? We don't even often think about it. Maybe you haven't even stopped to think about what did those words originally sound like that God spoke? What language was that in? What did Jesus speak, right? It's so foundational, we don't think about the mechanics and we don't think about how it it creates inclusion or creates division, right? With a common language, we have inclusion. People are, they understand us. We, we have fewer barriers. We can share our thoughts freely. But with, with language barriers, we have groups and subsets of groups and difficulty communicating. Language has the power to include or the power to divide. And that's what I want us, wanted us to start with thinking about this morning. And that frames in where we're headed in our passage. Maybe you know that if already if you've looked at this. Well, if you've been with us in these past weeks, you know we're studying the book of Acts, right? We're in the middle of eight weeks of working through this uh, this book. Last week, we saw the opening of the book where, where Jesus gave his final instructions to the disciples, right? He promised that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, right? And then Jesus, he ascended into the heavens and left them to wait for the Holy Spirit to begin that mission. The mission to bring salvation to all nations, right? And we've been saying, right, that is the main theme of the book of Acts. That's what we're going to see over and over again. Salvation to all nations. The Holy Spirit's mission to bring salvation to all nations. And as we read this book, we're going to see the early church wrestle with their, their own expectations of how God should be operating and how he's not operating that way. He's breaking the mold for them. Right? And they're going to have to come face-to-face with their embedded racism. They're going to have to wrestle with uh, their own understanding of what is essential for salvation. They're going to have to wrestle with social barriers of who, who's okay to associate with and who's not. But all along, God, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to see this morning, seems to have no such barriers and no issue just stepping right past those things and right beyond them, challenging the church to keep up and, and adapt change their perspective on these things. Now, you may have been asking this question last week when I introduced the series, but the the book of Acts, right, is 28 chapters long. How are we going to do that in eight weeks? Well, the the short answer is we're not going to cover all of the book of Acts. We're going to cover samplings of the book of Acts. We're not going to go through every verse in the book of Acts, but I encourage you, study it. Read through the whole book. It's, It's excellent. We're going to focus in on key moments in the book of Acts. And so today, we get to focus in on the first key moment uh, in, the, in the mission of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're looking at the pivotal moment of the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, as you studied this in your small groups this week, 
you may you may have been wondering what is going on here, right? What is the significance of the Holy Spirit arriving at Pentecost? What are we supposed to do with this? What what's the point, right? Like this is a, a why did the Holy Spirit come to believers? This is a great historic moment, but what do we do with it? I mean, that's that's the question I want us to wrestle with today. It's the question I've honestly been asking since I I've, I've started engaging with this uh, this book and this message and what I've been digging at, trying to get at in my study this week. So let's dig into the passage and see if we can find an answer to that. And if you have your Bible, you can turn it on, you can uh, flip to Acts chapter 2, open it up. We'll have the words on the screen. We'll do that for you most weeks if that's easier for you to follow along. And get, encourage you, stick with us, follow along as we read through this passage and engage with it. So we're going to cover a lot of ground here this morning. It's 41 verses. That's a lot. Uh, but... Uh, so, so let's get started. We're going to fly through some of these areas a little quicker than others. But we're going to break it down into multiple sections as we approach it this morning. First, we're going to see the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and that's the first 13 verses. Then we're going to see a big sermon that Peter offers. And then we're going to see the final section is the response that the crowd offers. So let's get started. Let's look at the first 13 verses together. We'll open to chapter 2 of Acts. We're going to start in verse 1. Here we're going to see the Holy Spirit arrive. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as if fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya beyond to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. So right there, opening of chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. The believers are gathered together. And suddenly, they hear a mighty wind blowing through the entire place they're gathered. Right? Next, they see what they describe as divided tongues like flames that descend and rest on them. And and we're told they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it enables them to speak in other languages. Languages they didn't know. Now, as we we get into this, though, let me me give you some background on what Pentecost is. Because I think it it can be lost on us. but But it's really helpful for understanding this passage, what's going on here. Pentecost literally means 50th. It's a festival that was celebrated on the seventh 
the day after the seventh Sabbath after Passover, if that makes sense. So 50 days after Passover. Now, it was originally a festival of first fruits of the grain harvest, sort of as, the, as they start to be able to harvest the grain. But it was coupled with a, a celebration of the day of the giving of the law. It's a time to remember and give thanks. It commemorates the law and, and give thanks for, for the abundant provision. It's sort of like if we were to like, couple together 4th of July and Thanksgiving Day. This is a big festival. It's a big deal. It's giving thanks and, and commemorating sort of the forming of Israel. It's, all, it's Thanksgiving and 4th of July all rolled into one. So Pentecost it was also one of, this, of a few, there's a few festivals, feast days, that Jews were required. All able-bodied Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. If you were following Yahweh, you, you came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Everyone came. It was one big party. And you can see that, right, from this lengthy list of the, that Luke gives us of all the people that are present. All nations, all corners. They all gathered. They're in one place. And these gathered people hear a rushing wind. And then they hear these backwater Galileans speaking in their native language. And they're perplexed. They wonder what it means. Right? Some in the crowd, they're amazed and they're moved. They wonder. They lean in. And others, they heckle them and they accuse them of being drunk, right? Now, right off the bat, what stands out to me, and maybe you notice this in your small group discussions or in your own personal study, the description of the Holy Spirit here, it's consistent with all the other theophanies that we see in Scripture. Theophany being you know, a presentation of, of a deity, right? Uh, God spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. Elijah was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. The Greek and Hebrew words for the Spirit of God, ruah and pneuma, they mean breath and air, wind. Those, the, the, those words have dual meaning. So this rushing, mighty wind they hear, it's just like how other people have described the Spirit of God manifested throughout, throughout God's engaging with humanity, throughout history, the way that Scripture describes the Spirit of God. But fire is also a consistent theophany, Right? Think about it. The, there's the smoking fire pot and flaming torch that God manifests as as he makes the covenant with Abraham back in, in Genesis. There's Moses interacting with God as a burning bush, right? Then there's the pillar of fire that leads Israel by night out of Egypt in the Exodus. These are just a couple examples. Wind and fire are consistent examples of God manifesting in our world. Not only is, are, are the descriptions of this manifestation of the Holy Spirit consistent with the rest of Scripture, the outworking of the Spirit is consistent, right? We saw this uh, a few weeks ago, right? Just as Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism and was empowered for his earthly ministry, so too these believers have received the Holy Spirit and are being empowered for the mission the Spirit on. They are enabled to speak foreign languages so that all that's gathered can understand clearly here. This, this event, this speaking in foreign languages, making the message of God clear to all that can hear it, is what some biblical theologians call the undoing of Babel. Right? If you remember the story of Babel, God confuses the languages of the people. And 
here, it's being undone. Everyone could communicate clearly. There was no language barrier. And so, at Pentecost, the nations are gathered in Jerusalem, and God sends the Holy Spirit to begin the mission of salvation to all nations. As a result of this, right, as we saw, Luke tells us the crowd was in awe, and, and some want, they were wondering, what does this all mean? But right, just, just as always is the case when we have the presence of God in our world, when God manifests in our world, and when we experience God, some mocked, some disbelieved. They accused the speakers of being drunk. They offered some alternative explanation other than God. They rejected it as being from God. To which Peter responds, right? Enter Peter's sermon. Hearing their accusation, Peter responds with the first three-point sermon of the book of Acts, which is, uh, there's going to be lots of these speeches or sermons. We're going to fly through Peter's sermon here because uh, it's long and we're already in the midst of one sermon. So uh, we're just going to summarize what Peter's doing point by point as we get through each section. But the speeches and acts are important. Don't, Don't pass over them in your study. When you encounter the speeches and acts, what you're getting is the theology of the early church. What they saw from the Old Testament applying to what was going on. What they believed about Jesus. It's where we get our theology. Consistent. Let's read, let's, let's read Peter's sermon. We'll read the first part, and we're going to see that he declares, these men aren't drunk. This is the Holy Spirit, is what his whole point is. Just what's been prophesied. So let's, let's read this. Picking up in verse 14. But Peter, spa- standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice to address them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And at the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter, here standing with the eleven apostles, addresses the gathered crowd. And he says, these guys aren't drunk. It's way too early for that. right?" Which I know some of you had fun with discussing in your uh, small groups this week. You shared that with me. Uh, rather, but... It's, it's too early in the day. It's like 9 a.m., he says. Rather, th- this is exactly what the prophet Joel prophesied. This is exactly what Joel was talking about, what happened in the last days. God would pour out his spirit on all people, all ages, all genders, all social classes, would have access to God and be able to call on him to be saved. That's what he just quoted from Joel. And the prophet also told us that we would recognize this as the work of the Holy Spirit, 
because it would be confirmed through signs and wonders. Wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Which, tangent, signs and wonders is the fascinating phrase. It's a very important phrase for the book of Acts. You can trace that through the book of Acts in your own personal study. Maybe circle it or highlight it whenever you see it. It's a repeated phrase you're going to see often. And it's important because it marks off and gives clarity to the authenticity of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's confirmation that this is God. That's what Joel just said. Peter's pointing to. It's a fun fact, so you know, watch that. Watch for that in your own personal study. Here, here in Peter's message, in his sermon, his first point, what he's saying is this. What's happening right now, what, what you're experiencing, he's telling the crowd, is that which Joel talked about. Joel, the prophet, prophesied that this would happen. This is the Holy Spirit. We are in the last days, and all who call in the name of the Lord can be saved. This is his first point. The opening of his sermon is an apologetic explaining what is currently happening with a huge exclamation point to the fact that salvation to all nations was God's intent from the beginning. Free access for everyone to the Holy Spirit. That's the opening of Peter's sermon. Let's keep moving and let's see his next point. Next, he's going to uh, summarize the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So let's, let's read that. We're going to pick up in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Signs and wonders. That God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter's next point is to confirm, is that God confirmed the identity of Jesus through signs and wonders. wonders. Mighty works that he did in their midst that they saw, these that were gathered. They themselves, he says, saw these things. Yet, yet they handed him over to be crucified. Which he, he says was all part of God's ordained plan. Don't, don't forget that. Yet nonetheless, they still killed him. And God raised him to new life, just as David prophesied in Psalm 16. Peter, he goes for the jugular here, doesn't he? Right? Like, I don't think you guys would be happy if I preached like this, right? Um, you saw the miraculous things Jesus did, and you still killed him, right? It's aggressive it's challenging convicting he says he, jesus was clearly from god and you sent him to the grave but the grave couldn't hold him and that was god's plan all along always god's plan to raise him to new life so peter here in his second point he's making it very clear that jesus is the promised messiah it's evidenced by his life and his works it was prophesied by David, and it was assured through his resurrection. His second point 
of his sermon is that Jesus was the Messiah. He died and rose again. Let's keep moving to the final point of Peter's sermon. Here we're going to see him quote from Psalm 110 and declare that Jesus is Lord. Let's read. We're going to pick up in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to, to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his defendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heaven, but he says, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here Peter is clarifying what David said in the previous psalm that he had quoted, right? He's saying David surely couldn't have been talking about himself because he's dead, right? He's like, his tomb's over there, which literally in Jerusalem, it was over there. We can go there. We can see it. David is dead. But David was a prophet, and he trusted God's promise to have a descendant on his throne forever, just as God said he would. He's speaking about Jesus here is what he's making the point of. And then he goes on to quote from Psalm 110, applying it to Jesus as the exalted, the one exalted to Lord, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over all creation, the resurrected Jesus sitting on the throne. And this final quote that he uses here from the Psalms, it's, it's the same one Jesus uses to stump the Pharisees, challenges them to see it as a messianic prophecy. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 24. It's fascinating. Jesus saw this as applying to himself. Peter sees it as applying to Jesus. And he's making the argument that David saw it applying to the Messiah, saw it applying to Jesus as well. The point here is, Jesus is alive and has been exalted. He sits at the right hand of the Father, enthroned in heaven, ruling as Lord. Jesus is Lord of all. That's his final point in the sermon. And then, in the briefest and most forceful conclusion that I could think of for this kind of a sermon, Peter summarizes his message with a declaration to all that are gathered that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. To be abundantly clear, to be clear what he is saying here, This Jesus whom you crucified was the promised Messiah, the anointed one. He was the sovereign ruler of all creation, the promised king in David's line, the one whom through all nations could call upon for salvation. And you missed it. You rejected him. You crucified him. Hearing this, you understand now what happens next. Hearing this, the people are convicted. They respond with repentance and belief. They're cut to the heart, it says. Let's read this final part of this passage. 
picking up in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So those hearing this message, having experienced the Holy Spirit's power, hearing that rushing wind, hearing the message in their own language, they were cut to the heart. They were moved to repentance. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, understanding that their sins had been forgiven. And then they too received the Holy Spirit. Peter affirms that this message, the promised Holy Spirit, and salvation is for all generations, even those that have rejected Jesus in his earthly life, even them. And then, I love it, just so casually, Luke tells us that the number that turned to Jesus that day was 3,000, right? <laughs> just a footnote here, which I suppose is appropriate, right? Because the excitement of the Holy Spirit arriving, the power of the gospel being preached to all these people, Salvation of a mass amount of people is just the natural outflowing of that. Like it's, it, it shouldn't overshadow what's the main character, the main enabler here, the Holy Spirit coming in power and turning hearts to Jesus. But it's a massive number of people that get saved and baptized that day. So we started this morning, right? We posed the question, what is the significance of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost? What's going on here, right? What are we supposed to take away with this? From this? Right? As we saw, Pentecost was a pivotal moment. It was a festival. It's a pivotal moment where the nations were gathered in Jerusalem. This was a time for the gospel message to go forth and spread to every corner of the known world as the people took it back with them. At this strategic moment, the Holy Spirit empowered the message of the last days that Jesus is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And that's what Peter preached. And 3,000 were saved. When the nations were gathered in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit arrived and enabled the early believers to speak in foreign languages so that travelers could hear the message with clarity in their own language. In this way, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the first Wycliffe Bible translator, if you know that reference. He's the original translator. He's bringing language. He's breaking down the barriers of language here, allowing the message to be clearly communicated. The Holy Spirit empowered the message of Jesus as Savior, Messiah, and Lord, and is still empowering that message today. Each time you share with someone about the hope you have in Jesus, you do so by the power of the Spirit in you. Each time you share the truth of Jesus as Savior of the world, you do so empowered by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit. 
The same spirit is in us today as his followers. The same mission rests on us today as began there. The same Holy Spirit has come upon us and empowers us. See, at Pentecost, the Spirit erased language barriers for all those present in Jerusalem, right? Freely, they could hear the message of salvation. The Holy Spirit included people in hearing the message of Jesus and being able to call on Him for salvation, right? Because a common language, no language barrier, creates inclusion rather than barriers or division. Through signs and wonders of speaking in foreign languages, through the sounds of a mighty rushing wind and the visual of what appeared to be flaming divided tongues, the work that's going on here was undeniably God's. It was the Spirit come in power. This was the power Jesus promised. What we saw last week, he said the Holy Spirit would come and you would have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we continue on that mission to this day. Just as the Holy Spirit will continue to empower throughout the book of Acts, here at Pentecost, it carried the message of Jesus over geographic and cultural and linguistic barriers and allowed for all to hear the name of Jesus and be saved. Well, I like that same power in us as followers of Jesus today. The power to overcome barriers and share the message of Jesus with others. The power to bridge cultural divides with the common message of salvation in Jesus. And so as we continue to partner with the Holy Spirit on mission to bring salvation to all nations, let's acknowledge the power of the Spirit in us. Acknowledge the power of the Spirit to understand the message of Jesus and embrace the power of the Spirit to share that with others. Let's be on mission, enabled by the Holy Spirit. Let's embrace the power of the Holy Spirit in us and share Jesus with others. That's what's going on at Pentecost. Would you pray with me?